the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Did the Egyptians, magicians' ability to duplicate the miracle, assuage any concerns Pharaoh had that he might be in over his head? Or maybe matched up against somebody who's not my equal? Because you called us as your own. You brought us to your phone. Or did he consider himself on equal ground with Jehovah because they could duplicate it? Whatever he's thinking, he seems pretty laid back in light of this miracle. And here's the crazy thing. And we long for you alone. He doesn't give it a second thought, but he's in way over his head. Way over his head. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Last we saw in Exodus that Moses and Aaron had come to Pharaoh as God had called them to do. They showed the first miracle unto Pharaoh, hoping it would change his mind and heart. Aaron's rod became a massive snake. It is here we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 7, verse 10. Now Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord commanded. You're going to see this over and over again. Instead of just them saying what they did, it's going to make it very clear they were obedient to the Lord. They are on board now. They did so as the Lord had commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. If I'm Pharaoh, I would go, whoa, okay, well, that, I don't see that every day. But maybe he did. But whether or not he saw it, that should have given him an indication he was dealing with something supernatural here. This was not a bluff. This was not just Moses and Aaron coming in because the people were lazy. He was really dealing with a supernatural entity here. Pharaoh, his response, though, is, is interesting to me. Instead of seeing that and going, okay, let's talk. He says, it, it says, Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. Now who are these guys? The word they're sorcerers and magicians. It means soothsayer priests. These are guys who practice witchcraft in their worship. They would, you know, search the animal entrails and, you know, search the skies for astrology and things like that to determine the future. And they're very steeped in the occult practices. So the ultimate question that we ask here is when Pharaoh summons them out, out to repeat the miracle and they do it, is it legit? Were these legitimate supernatural effects through satanic power? Well, what does the Bible say? Is that even possible? Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me. Now the reference here is to the Antichrist. Verses 9 and 10 is where we're going to look at. So speaking of the end times, speaking of the Antichrist, and he's going to come and it mentions here in verse 9, even him, the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of who? of Satan, right? With all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So the Bible says this is possible, that Satan does have power, that he can do supernatural things, okay? Now, 
Obviously, when we look at Satan and whatever power he has as an angel, a fallen one, is that equal to God's power or equivalent to God's power? No. God is omnipotent. Satan is not omnipotent. He is limited in power. There's a sense where we have power, where we have ability from God to do certain things that other parts of creation can't. Satan has power to do things that we can't do as an angelic being, as a spirit being, okay? But he is not the equivalent of God. His power is limited, okay? For example, he can't create something from nothing like God can. He has to fashion and form things that already exist into something that looks miraculous. Now, Egyptian sorcerers, according to history, and this is not from the Bible, this is you just read history about them. You can go Google it and find all sorts of interesting information. They were steeped in the occult. And these guys, they commonly carried around snakes, which appeared as rods. Um, they claimed that through their wisdom and power and the power of their gods, they had the ability to charm a serpent into a paralyzed state and could bring them back to life at will. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me. It describes these soothsayer priests, these magicians that Moses is facing and Aaron are facing, and it actually gives them names here. And talking about in the end times how there'll be false teachers, and it explains what they're like, and then it compares them to these magicians, these soothsayers. In verse 7 of 2 Timothy 3, it says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These were not unintelligent guys. These were guys who were considered the demic people of their time period. And says, so it says, now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these false teachers also resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, even as theirs, Janus and Jamrazes, was also. We'll look at that in just a moment, what that means. But Second Timothy that describes these guys as intelligent, learned men, but men who are oh so far from the true power of God. My question is, why would Pharaoh even summon them? Shouldn't the miracle, whatever the source, have gotten his attention? This is the stubbornness of Pharaoh. He had no intention of obeying God. And so when something actually happened, and he's like, whoa, that's supernatural, he looked for an excuse of why he doesn't need to listen. Here's the thing. Do you and I do that? It's funny how we work sometimes. We're like, God, if you just write it in the sky, I would know it's you. And the Lord's like, I don't need to write it in the sky. I wrote it in a book. I already gave it to you. This is a miraculous thing that you can study and you can see. No contradictions, no problems, fulfilled prophecy. You can see it. But even if God were to write it in the sky, we still wouldn't necessarily believe. Remember Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man died and he was in torment. And he said to Abraham, can you send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers so they don't come to this place? What did Abraham say? Even if one came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. To this day, <laughs> Jesus came back from the dead. People don't believe. Oh, that's ridiculous. That probably didn't really happen. Oh, that's just make-believe. It's a fairy tale. It's whatever. But what's interesting is we have no recorded incident of anyone challenging it. None. In fact, the only recorded incident of anyone challenging it is in the scriptures itself, where it tells a story about how the Jews, Jewish leaders made up a story saying the disciples stole the body. But no one else said that. Like the Romans didn't say that. There's no Roman historian or writer or anything saying that that's what happened because there's no evidence. Resurrection and many other things that we can find in history because of the eyewitness accounts of people who said, it happened, I was there. You know, it would have been very easy for one of the 12 to say, you know, I mean, Judas, of course, is dead. So one of the 11 that were left to say, no, James and Peter and John are all making it up. They always like to be special, the three. Jesus always took them aside, but really, he was just doing that to keep an eye on them, keep them out of trouble. But we know he didn't rise from the dead. It could have been very easy for any one of them to say that. 
And when you consider the fact that they all lost their lives, I don't know about you, but I'm not dying for a lie. I'm not going down because of something I know ain't true. It doesn't make any sense. So we often do the very same thing. You know, God, just I wish you'd speak to me. And then you would go to church and the teacher is teaching a study and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> it's like, you know, what more can God do? Notice here that they cast down their rods and they became serpents too, but Aaron's rods swallowed up their rods. It's interesting. The word that's used for Aaron's rod that becomes a serpent, it's the word tenon. And it was actually used to describe a dragon or a crocodile or a venomous snake. And so some people have wondered, you know, if, you know, his snake was just bigger and badder and meaner and nastier and just swallowed these guys up. I don't know exactly what it was, but God was demonstrating clearly that Moses's miracle was no mere snake in a paralyzed state. It was no mere smoke and mirrors that Satan uses, his supernatural work that's limited, but it was the creative work of God to take a real piece of wood and turn it into a real snake and therefore stronger than their natural creatures. And shouldn't that get Pharaoh's attention? Nope. Verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. They say, well, that's not Pharaoh's fault. If God hardened his heart, how is that Pharaoh's fault? Bad translation there. Literally, the translation is, and Pharaoh's heart grew stiffer. Most translators describe this not to God's doing, but to Pharaoh's doing. Verse 14 explains that this is the case. For the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And that there means Pharaoh has stiffened his heart. So that gives us the explanation in the next verse who's doing the hardening. He says, in fact, the very nature of this, it's literally an adjective. It's not a verb in verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's stubborn heart. (laughs) That's how it's actually worded in the Hebrew. He just comes to Moses and he goes, Pharaoh's stubborn heart. That's, That's how it's worded. And then it's like dot, dot, dot. He refuses to let the people go. Very clearly here, God is not hardening his heart against Pharaoh's will. This is Pharaoh stiffening his own heart. And because of this, God begins to deal with Egypt in judgment. And we begin our study of the plagues, verse 15. Now, the plagues are very interesting because they come, aside from the last plague, they come in groups of three. You could find out, do do a study on this, you'll see that the first and the fourth and the seventh plague, they all occur the same way. Moses goes to Pharaoh, tells him something. Pharaoh says, no, God brings a judgment. The next three, the second, the fifth, and the eighth plague, they all occur under the same circumstances. The third, the sixth, and the ninth plague, they all occur under the same circumstances. So there's this wave of God upping the ante every single wave of three plagues. Three, you don't listen? Okay, I'll up the ante. Up, don't listen? I'll up the ante. And of course, we finally get to plague number 10 where God ups the ultimate ante, where Pharaoh is willing to put not just his own son on the line, but all these Egyptians, his own people, for his own stubbornness. So we start here, and God says, Get you unto Pharaoh. In the morning, lo, he goes out unto the water, and you shall stand by the river's brink against he come, or on the opposite side. So they'll be on one side of the river, Pharaoh will be on the other. And your rod, which was turned to a serpent, shall you take in your hand. And you shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, hitherto you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, In this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that which is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. God tells him, you go meet Pharaoh. He's coming out. Again, God knows what's going to happen before it happens. He's going to come down to the Nile, and when he gets there, you tell him that this is what I'm going to do, that he will know that I am the Lord. 
As a result, the water will turn to blood, the fish in the river will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe. That sounds like they drank it, but they didn't want to. The word there, loathe, means to not be able. They will not be able to drink the water of the river. What's interesting here is, why command Moses to announce it to Pharaoh in verse 15, but not actually give Moses permission to pull the trigger until verse 19. Verse 19, and the Lord spoke unto Moses and said, say unto Aaron, take now your rod and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Egypt. Why do that? Why, why, not, why don't we just have the story of him going to the river and having him do it? Why tell Moses first, but not let him pull the trigger till he gets there in verse 19? Well, I think God's still giving Pharaoh a chance to repent. He's giving him a chance to change his mind. And you know, sometimes we stubbornly refuse to obey God when he tells us to do something long enough that things get quiet, don't they? The Lord stops pestering us. He stops bugging us. But it'd be wrong to assume that God is okay with what we're doing in that moment. He's giving you and me time to repent because if we don't, then the action will come without any further warning. There's no warning to Pharaoh here. At this point in time, he says, I'm just gonna tell you what I'm gonna do. So by the time they get to that river and Pharaoh has not changed his mind, there's no warning. Moses just says, because you didn't listen, this is what I'm going to do. And he orders Aaron to stretch out the rod and to turn it into blood. So verse 19, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, say unto Aaron, take your rod and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams and upon their rivers and upon their ponds, that would be their lakes, and upon all the pools of water, that would be all the collection of water that the Nile fed into, that they may become blood and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded And he lifted up the rod and he smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. And what happened? All the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died and the river stank and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. I wouldn't call myself necessarily squeamish around blood or anything like that. But I definitely never wanted to be a doctor growing up, okay? There was never any desire to be around cuts or blood oozing or anything like that. I'm the type of person that when I read my Bible, I try to picture it. I try to picture it in a way that I can understand it. The thought of just a river full of blood and blood in the, you got your Dasani water and all of a sudden you look over and it's just this nasty blood in there. I mean, that's disgusting, okay? The thought of the sight and then the smell of this happening in an instant makes me queasy. All of a sudden you're there and just the very nature of that scent and that smell, it just inside makes me very queasy. But that's exactly what God did. Can you imagine how nauseated those people were? how just atrocious the whole event would have been to them. Sometimes God allows the ugly to happen to get our attention. How many of you came to Christ because God allowed the ugly to happen? A lot of us did. And so God does this horrible judgment upon the Egyptians by turning the river Nile into blood. What's going on here? Why did God pick that? Why did God do that? Well, remember, something I mentioned to you earlier is that each one of these plagues is a judgment upon one of Egypt's major deities. One of their major deities was Hapi, the Egyptian god of water and fertility. And he was synonymous with the Nile. In fact, he was con- the Nile was considered his manifestation on earth. For the entire water supply to become polluted was the equivalent of God taking out Hapi. Hoppy is no more. (laughs) Hoppy is dead. (laughs) And he's bleeding right in front of you. The gauntlet's been thrown and God says, okay, I'll take the gloves off. Let's go. Because you can't match me here. This doesn't work out well for you. 
I just slayed your river god in a moment. No, no effort taken. There was no big battle, no thunder, no lightning. Bam, he's dead. Now what? See, for Egypt, this would have been a huge blow. Everything they got came from the Nile. It was considered the source of all life, all their blessings. And Pharaoh coming down to the river very likely was not just a fun trip. Let's go see the river, guys. You know, I'm Pharaoh. I got nothing else to do. No, more than likely it was coming down there like Moses' stepmother, I guess you could say, adopted mother. She came down for a ritual experience. This was probably a moment of worship. He was probably down there with his priests and with all his you know, men, and, and they're coming down for some ritual cleansing or something like that. And all of a sudden, he's killed his God. That's a bad day for Pharaoh. Now, how did this actually happen? What's going on here? Well, it's obviously possible that God just turned it into blood. I have no issue with that. It's also possible that God caused something similar to a red tide. Um, the algae which caused a red tide are actually very prominent in southern Sudan and Lake Tana, which by the source of the Nile, the White Nile. And when this algae finds optimal settings for growth, it changes the oxygen level in the water, which proves deadly for the fish and other forms of marine life. And the algae takes on a red tint. You just Google red tide and it was gross. I saw Australia had it a couple years ago and they showed this thing in where the ocean was there and then they had a pool at a resort area that was not fed by the ocean water, but it was fed by just a chlorinated pool. And so right next to the ocean, you had this pool beautiful blue water in the pool and right next to it you had this red disgusting looks like blood ocean water and, and a beach you know beautiful beach right you know in the background there was another image I saw where the waves are coming in and they're just blood red waves coming in so it's very possible that that this happened the LJ takes on a red tint that makes the color of the water appear like a very thin blood it also creates a horrible stench so, like I said, God could have simply turned it into real blood. I have no issues with that. Or he could have done this. We won't know for sure this side of heaven. So when we get there, you'll find out. Verse 22. And the magicians of Egypt, this makes me laugh, did so with their enchantments. Now, first off, if there's no water to be found, they had to go somewhere to actually find water to change it into blood again. You know, like what did Pharaoh do? Get me some water and duplicate it. You know, okay, like seven hours later, you know, they come back. We found water. Turn it into blood. I'm actually, I haven't had a drink all day. I mean, that's how I would be. I'd be like, we couldn't find any, you know? (laughs) Nowhere, you know? (laughs) Sorry, king. But but they bring it to him and it turns it into blood. And then look at what this. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened again, or literally was stubborn. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his own house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. These guys, through their secret arts and their mystery practices, they duplicated the miracle. And Pharaoh, okay, I don't have to deal with this. And he turns around and he walks home. No ritual, no skin off my back. I'm good. I'm just going to go back home, watch the Egyptian Titans, go beat the Egyptian whatever on TV, you know. I'm going to go home and just live my life with no apparent thought. He says he didn't even set his heart to it. Now, did the Egyptians, magician's ability to duplicate the miracle, assuage any concerns Pharaoh had that he might be in over his head? I may be matched up against somebody who's not my equal. Or did he consider himself on equal ground with Jehovah because they could duplicate it? Whatever he's thinking, he seems pretty laid back in light of this miracle. And here's the crazy thing. He doesn't give it a second thought, but he's in way over his head. Way over his head. Literally, because the Red Sea is going to come crashing down on his entire army in just a short time. He is way in over his head. And so often we do the very same thing We try to go toe-to-toe with God, not realizing our defeat isn't even making him break a sweat. When Jacob wrestled with God, I don't think God was huffing and puffing. I don't think it was God was going, you know, oh man, Jacob, you're a a rough one. You're a tough nut to crack here. No, the Bible says he just touched him. 
wrestling with him all night. And the invocation is at any point, God could have just said, zap. You know, and Jacob, ah, you know, I'm done for life. At any moment, God could have just zapped him, but he didn't. He was trying to bring Jacob to this place of, Jacob, we can do this. I can, I can do this all day. <laughs> I'm not breaking a sweat. I can do this your entire life, but haven't you been fighting me enough, Jacob? Isn't it time to surrender? And he takes out his hip. And Jacob, the Bible says, with tears, pleads with God, please. I've got nowhere else to go. Don't leave me without blessing me. And the Lord does. He changes his name. You're not going to be somebody who fights with me anymore, Jacob. You're going to be somebody who's ruled by me. You're going to be governed by God. Pharaoh's going to lose everything. But right now, he thinks he's fine. And I don't know if you're here tonight and you're fighting God. But I want to encourage you, don't. (laughs) Because that's a fight you can't win. I see people all the time, I'm going to rule hell. You know, what does it say? Heavens, heavens do something for me and you know, hell's afraid I'll take over or something like that. I'm not good enough for heaven, but hell's afraid I'll take over. No, they're not. No, they're not. All right? They care less about you. All right? You're just another added person there because all they're concerned about is the fact of they're knowing, they're knowing in their mind, I, I rejected the God who made me and I deserve to be here. Can you imagine what that's going to be like on the day of judgment as Revelation 20 says, and the books are opened? Or the entire guilty verdict makes sense? I can't even fathom that. To have thought that you could take on God? There are those, you know, you go to blasphemethehollyspirit.com, people who have denied Christ and recorded on video because they want you to know, I am standing toe-to-toe against God. I don't care what he does to me. That's a fight you can't win. And it's a fight that doesn't even need to be had because he loves you. He's not against you. He sent his son to die for you. Cares about you. And when he gives his commands, it's because it's what's in our best interest, right? There's no reason to fight him. Well, verse 24. Now all the Egyptians dig round about the river for water to drink. And the idea of digging here is they're looking for new springs, new sources of water that won't be corrupted by the Nile. They're just trying everywhere for they could not drink of the water of the river. And so for seven days, I don't know if they found any, I don't, know if, I don't know what happened, but for seven days, the Nile was blood. All their water that they had gotten from the Nile was blood. And after that, the Lord had smitten the river. My thought is, why not repent? Because later on, Pharaoh's going to repent. You know, he's going to say, Moses, priest, pray that the hail stops, or pray this stops, or pray this stops. And God does. Why not repent? But you know, it's almost like Pharaoh's kind of saying, we can weather this. I'm not intimidated by this Jehovah, God of the Hebrews. Find new springs for water. Go digging. We got plenty of manpower. Let's dig. We can wait this out. We can weather this. And were they successful? Again, the Bible doesn't say. But it does show the futility of fighting God. Because God's the one who finally relented. He's the one who finally said, okay, that's enough. And he allowed the Nile to return to what it was. If I could play this song for you and it felt like it would be fruitful, I would. But maybe you can look it up later on. It's by a band called The Waiting, and it's called Hands in the Air. It was written in the late 90s, so it's kind of old. But I want to read to you some of the lyrics from this song. Maybe you were here tonight, you saw people raising their hands during worship. The Bible tells us to lift our hands up to God and worship. And sometimes I think we wonder why. Like, what does that mean? Why would we do that? There's a couple things that, that we, reasons we do that. For example, if, you go, if you, the police come to you and they say, what is it, come out with what? Why is that? 
it's because you're vulnerable. The idea of surrender. The idea is you can't defend yourself if your hands are up, so you're safe, so they can take you in. They're not a danger to them, giving absolute surrender. And so a lot of times when we sing, that's what we're saying. We're saying, Lord, I'm, I'm making myself vulnerable to you. I surrender. I, I trust you with my life. I give it to you completely. I'm okay with that because I know you love me. What do they say in school if you know the answer? Do what? Raise your hand. And it's the same thing. There's times when we declare things like, I rise to sing your praises, declare your rule and reign, my life, confess your lordship and glorify your name. That's the answer. And that's what I want to do. So we do that. And there are times we do that because we're hurting. We're frustrated or we don't know what to do. And you say, Lord, I just, I just need, I need to know I'm going to be okay, <laughs> you know? And, it's, and the Lord does. He wraps his arms around us and he takes us up and he carries us. There's another reason we raise our hands. Never, we went to the Magic game. You know, there's a lot of people raising their hands at the end of that game, right? They won in overtime and it's like, ah, you know, you know, stuff like that. And they won the Super Bowl. You saw people, ah, you know, and you know, there's, there's a sense of we win. There's an excitement to that. And that's a good reason to raise our hands too. But the song, it's a story about a guy who's been fighting against God. And he finally, the theme of the song is he raises his hands in surrender. And so it talks about him fighting God and whatnot throughout the song. But at the end, he says, if I raise my hands so weak and thin and frail, will you reveal the light of mercy in your eyes? And if I cry to you faintly, will my feeble whisper fail? Or will it find its way to a reply? Because now that I'm exhausted, I think I'm ready to admit that I have spent all my resistance on someone I can't resist. So now I understand a loser is due to win, how every dying man is sure to rise again. So I raise my left hand one, and I raise my right hand two. And under the morning sun, my spirit cries to you, okay, hear what I say. I raise my hands and surrender today. If you have a chance, listen to the song because it's very powerful, it's very moving. And I think there's probably a time in our lives where we need to, maybe there might be even here tonight, and you need to do that. There's the line in the long, you know, it talks about how I've been fighting you, going, been toe-to-toe too long, but now I'm black and blue. And the idea is that you're not going to win that fight. So why not lose now and in your surrender, win? Amen? Why not surrender now? and be on the victorious end of things. There is only one way to come to God. It is only on His terms and when we agree with what He has declared in His Word that we can come and stand before Him. Surrender to Him is victory for us. He is not against us. He is for us. He is for you, individually, as a person, your family, your cares and concerns. He sees you and knows your name. Won't you surrender to Him? He has done everything for us to be with Him. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel, Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.